Hello and welcome to Pocket Therapist. I'm your host, Dr. Adam Moore, licensed marriage and family therapist. I'm going to teach you everything I've learned over the last 13 years as a therapist to help maximize the value you get out of your relationships. Hey everybody, welcome back to Pocket Therapist. Uh, This is Adam Moore and today I am with uh, our newest hire at our Utah Valley Counseling location, Sam Major. How's it going, Sam? It's going well. Glad to be here. All right. And uh, Sam is a graduate of, tell tell us a little bit about the program. Uh, So I graduated from Northwestern University in Chicago in marriage and family therapy. Um, Great program. Yeah, a lot of fun. Glad to be back here. Awesome. And you're from Utah originally. Yeah, I'm born and raised in Orem. So we we got you back, and that was the original plan, right? You 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 weren't planning on living in Chicago for the rest of your life. Yeah, the plan was to go out, kind of get a different experience, and then come back. Sweet. So today the topic is because a lot of people ask questions like, well, "What is it like to be a therapist? What's it like to be sitting with people all day when they share all of their sad stories and their pain with you?" and how do you, I get this all the time. People are like, I don't, I couldn't do what you do. Have you ever had people say that to you? Yeah. Yeah. I get, I get that question a lot or people that want to, um, they always say, you know, I've always wanted to help people. You're a therapist. What's it like doing that? Right. People want to know, and there's no way to, you know, you can't sit in on a therapy session to see if you're going to like it. Yeah. People will say, how can I, how can I know if I'm going to like it? And I go, there's no way. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You just have to go to school and cross your fingers because there isn't a way to intern or to, to peek in that the closest thing you're going to get is doing your own therapy and feeling what it's like, at least on that other side, on the couch. Right. Yep. So I want to talk today about what it is like to be a mental health professional, about what it's like to sit with people in pain and answer some of the common questions that we get from other people and uh, see if we can help some people out who are either interested in potentially becoming therapists themselves or who just uh, find it a fascinating subject and want to know how we, uh, what makes us tick and how we survive doing what we do. Okay. So the first question is, why does, this, why does a person decide to go into, into mental health as a profession as opposed to anything else, software, uh, or engineering or auto mechanics what what is it about us that makes us uh, that makes us decide that this is the right profession for us what's your what's your short version of that story um so it's actually making me think of like one of my first days in class I had a cohort of 27 there's 27 of us and that's what the question we all had, were asked mm. and we had to answer to each other and the common theme was these are people that want to help people. They seem to be socially, want to be socially involved with people. And they're the types of people that wanted to, I guess the people that would, their friends would talk to. Um, I'm that, that was like the common theme. Like growing up, I was the one that at two o'clock in the morning, someone would call me crying or wanting help or advice. And I seemed to be really, really good at it. And so I decided, Hey, that's maybe I should be a therapist. That's, that feels right. And it feels, uh, I seem to be good at least helping people um, outside of an actual mm-hmm. professional role. And I actually had that. Did you have that experience growing up? Did people say that to you? Oh, yeah. Like Yeah, and I did too. Like yeah. I had people, in fact, I had people telling me, you should be a therapist. Yep. And I was like, nah, <laughs> I didn't want to do it. Maybe you Maybe you were earlier to the, <laughs> to the starting gate on that one. 
Um, but I, my experience was that people were telling me all the time, wow, you give such great advice and stuff, which it's funny because a lot of therapy isn't advice, but you know, that's what people know is yeah. you're easy to talk to or I feel better at the end of our conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I got, I got that a lot growing up. I still do, except now they put the label and say, and you're a therapist. So you and should know. So clearly you know what you're doing. <laughs> um, so there is a little bit of DNA there, I think, where people are born with a certain skill set, with a certain desire, mm-hmm. a certain um, propensity for connecting with people, for understanding the human experience, for having empathy. A lot of times people are like, I don't know how you do what you do because I couldn't handle sitting with people and all their emotions all day. you know. Yeah. And I think that is important to note because even though this might be written into our DNA, there still is a lot of training that we have to do in order to to do this and not take it home and worry about people all night, which would totally kill us if we, if we did that. Yeah. I don't know about you and I'm interested to hear your experience, but I remember in my first like six months of doing uh, graduate training and I was seeing clients, I was taking people home with me in my mind. I was shouldering the the burden of their lives and realizing pretty quickly, this is not going to work. I, yeah. I can't do this. I have to figure out somehow how to care about people, but then let them go after the appointment. Did you experience that as well? Yeah, definitely. Uh, for the first, it was, yeah, about the same time, first six months, maybe even a year where I just would go home. And it was not just taking their problems, but I was trying to solve the problems. Cause oh, yeah. I, wanted, I wanted something profound to say when I came back <laughs> and I saw them the next time. And realizing that, you know, I can't always do that. I have to, at a professor tell me, he's like, you got to learn to switch hats mm. and it's okay. Like, and that took, that took a long time to get used to. What are the hats? So there was like the therapist hat and then the just like normal person hat. Like <laughs> I, those are the two things, right? That I switch in between. Where... Somehow you're supposed to turn that therapist part off yep. to go back to the rest of life. Yep. And that's that's actually really hard because then I would go, you go at home and you pick up on things that you would normally pick up on in therapy that are mm. important and significant in therapy. But really like 90% of the time when you go home, it's like, it's actually not that important. I don't have to be a therapist all the time. And sometimes you're not allowed to do those things because uh, when you're married, for example, your wife says, knock that stuff off. I don't want therapist version of you. I just want regular you. Yep. <laughs> and, I, and I've gotten that, you know, I, I, I had an edict early on in my therapy career Ne- I'm never allowed to show up as therapist Adam into our normal relationship, yep. which is funny because then a lot of people think, oh, it must be amazing to be married to therapists. We covered that in a, a previous podcast. And nope, I, I'm regular me uh, outside of the room, <laughs> outside of the therapy room. So how do, how does one switch those hats? I mean, you know, if if it's in our DNA to to be paying attention to patterns and people and emotions and stuff... How do you just switch that off when you're at home or when you're in a different context and not people are always asking me, oh, you're a therapist. Are you analyzing me right now? Yes. <laughs> I'm like, nope, I'm not getting paid right now. So I'm not, not really going to put that, to, <laughs> you know, do that thing. But uh, how, how, do, how do you switch off that part of your brain or at least allow it to be functioning in the background so it's not eating into your relationships or whatever you're focusing on? Well, before I answer that, I find it funny that you 
bring that up because the other thing I get is, oh, you graduated in psychology? That was first. My bachelor's was in psychology. Right. Are you reading my mind? That's the other thing. Are you reading my mind? I'm like, yeah, it says it right on my, my degree. It says, I can read minds, right? I can read minds. But no, I can't. Um, <laughs> but I think to switch, to answer your question, like to switch it off, like I, I can't switch it off all the time. I can, though, just recognize like this is not the time and the place for me to be paying attention so much to those things. People don't want... I think of it as unsolicited advice. People don't usually want that. Right. Unless they're, when they're coming into therapy, most of the time they want something. But like in real life, people are get really annoyed when you keep pointing things out to them. And so <laughs> if they're not paying for the advice, they don't want it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Or if I'm just, I'm just, I just like let myself like, oh, Sam, you're just, I tell myself, Sam, just enjoy the fact that you're with friends you can talk about this stuff, really, if people are interested. That's the one thing is I've found a lot of people when I go to parties and they find out I'm a therapist, I become the center of attention because they're <laughs> like, oh, you must have really fascinating stories. But I've learned to just kind of clip them off short and just yeah. like, yeah, this is cool. But like, I'm here to just kind of enjoy. Tell me about your life. Well, and not only that, but it's like, I actually, no matter what stories I have, I can't tell you my stories because yeah. they're all confidential. Yeah. So it doesn't matter what I have in my brain, you're you're not privy to that. I have law. There are laws around what's in my brain. Yeah, exactly. And so if I remember that, and I uh, kind of remind my my trick is to remind myself, like, what was it like before you went through this graduate training? What did you do um, when you're socializing with people? Um, which reminds me that sometimes, well, when I think that, it reminds me like. You know, some people sometimes people do want to still come to you for advice as friends, mm -hmm. but most of the time they just want to enjoy your company. And so, if I right. kind of keep that in mind, it makes it a lot easier to just put what I'm noticing in the background of my head, so I can just kind of enjoy the time. And I've had, I've had kind of an opposite of experience, like where where people, um, people are coming to you going, oh, "You're a therapist, let's talk." And when people find out I'm a therapist, it's almost like, "Oh my gosh." Because I think they are worried I'm going to read their mind and they don't want to talk to me anymore. Yeah. So it's hard to have friends, I've found. I, I tend, most of my friends are other therapists because we, you know, we sort of get each other. But I, it feels like a lot of other people are really worried that I'm going to be, you know, looking into their soul while yeah. we're talking about their car or whatever, whatever's going yeah. on, you know. Telling them what, what's, what they're doing wrong in their lives and yeah. they have to do it's better. Like, uh, it's like that scene in, uh, that Bruce Willis movie with M. Night Shyamalan? Is it un Unbreakable or something like that? I can't remember. But the guy that he he touches people and he can see everything they wrong they've ever done. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like I think people are worried that they're they don't want to get too close. Uh, so I think we have some kind of superpowers that we really don't. Yeah. Here's another thing that I've noticed that has helped me to not take people's stuff home with me is, I, and I've been doing this a long time. You know, after about a decade, you start to realize I'm not probably nearly as powerful as I would like to be. <laughs> I wish I could just snap my fingers and change everyone's life or that every word I said had this dramatic influence over people. But the reality is that certainly there are some moments like that in our therapy sessions, but a lot of it is just a human connection, a human interaction with people. And if I make a mistake or if I do something really cool It'll have some impact on a person's life, but not so dramatic that I'm altering the course of everything that's happening with them 
you know, people still have free will and the ability to make choices and, and other influencing factors that have nothing to do with me. And that actually helped me knowing that I'm not that powerful helped me to relax a little bit and feel like it's okay. Like you were saying, I'm trying to come up with something profound to say. It's okay if not everything I say is profound. It's okay if this session doesn't change the person's life. And it's okay if I do something ludicrous and make a mistake. If I if I can be accountable for it, then I can go to bed at night knowing that it's not changing the universe. And that that's better for me to feel like I'm uh, less powerful than it is to walk around feeling like I am holding the, you know, everyone's life is in the balance and it's up to me to save them. That's too much. Yeah, definitely. I... I have the same same thoughts, um, and I, I've just noticed in my short time as a therapist that a lot of the times the change that comes in their lives has nothing to do with me. Right. They're just grateful to have somebody kind of, I also think of myself more as a witness of their life, um, and when I kind of think about it that way, it is also easier. It's like, well, I know from week to week, I'm simply trying, even though I'm trying to do my best. To, to help them, I'm also mainly kind of there as a witness. And then their life, they're just kind of grateful to have somebody there who can, who can listen to them. And then their life kind of takes care of it itself. A lot of things, a lot of things tend to work themselves out given time. And the fact mm-hmm. that the person's caring at all. The fact that they're in the room with you says they're invested enough that they're looking for solutions, not just with you, but all over. Yeah. You know, and so... And I've had that experience too. At, at the end of treatment with somebody, I'll say, "Hey, we're going to do a you know graduation session." I used to say termination, but somebody, one of my clients, <laughs> is like, "That sounds really morbid. You're not terminating us, please. Just say graduation." So, if I'm having a graduation session with somebody, I will often ask the question, "What were the most influential parts of this healing process?" And it's almost always something that happened outside the room. And I'm mm-hmm. always like modestly disappointed <laughs> that, it, <laughs> that they're like. That are not telling me it was you. Everything you said just changed my life. It's usually some unpredictable thing that happened. But what the therapy did for them was giving them a context to deal with or understand or implement that thing that happened. Whereas maybe if they weren't in therapy, it would have happened, but then it wouldn't have had the impact because they wouldn't have known what to do with it or they wouldn't have been paying attention or whatever. So I think we have this dual experience where we need to be simultaneously aware that we are still just deeply human and just sitting with people in a human experience. And that's maybe one of the most important parts of therapy, but also that people are expecting that we know more than the average person. We do have better insight than just random, you know, Joe blow off the street or grandma and that we can guide and direct them. And it's not just a paid friend. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Definitely. I, uh, though it is, it is amazing to me because I, Having just moved here from uh, finishing up my uh, my uh, master's program in this, and it was amazing how often I, I would ask them, like, "So this is our last time together. What made the most impact?" And a big part of it was they they bring up things that's like I don't even remember ever saying that. You know, <laughs> I've had that a million times, and I'm like, I'm totally owning that, even though that sounds way <laughs> smarter than anything I would have ever said. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Well, and and they there is that sense of like, well, it's because I was confident in the stuff I did know and I was confident enough to keep to, you know, sit and work with you on what I know is helpful for your life. But it wasn't that exactly that was making the change. Again, it's kind of the witness or the fact that I, I often tell my clients like, you know, it's just the very 
process of coming into therapy with someone who, you know, has kind of a more, um, you know, expert role or has that background in training, just coming from week to week somehow changes them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just that context of therapy changes things more than necessarily something specific. I said, though, every once in a while, that's that is what happens. And those are the magic moments that we look for as therapists to remind ourselves that that we do matter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not just as a warm body or, a, or an ear. Um, but it is interesting to notice that there was even a study once that demonstrated that um, therapy clients experience reduction in symptoms after the f- initial phone call to schedule, even though they haven't even seen a therapist. Just the idea that they're going to get help and that they're proactively seeking help starts to reduce symptoms. So it's amazing how much the power of intention has for people Mm -hmm. and the power of expectancy, you know, the hope, I hope that I'm going to get better and I'm putting energy into it. And so I automatically start to get better. Yep. Right. Which is super cool. And, and uh, there's a book called the heroic client. uh, And I can't remember the authors right now, but it's all about that idea that really the hero of the therapeutic story is the client, not the therapist. And so if we can help clients access their own internal resources and help them see past their weaknesses or the the scripts that they've learned from growing up that that they're not good enough or whatever it is that once they can access those resources then then the cool stuff starts to happen and i love i love that point you can kind of see it um on the side of the therapist like when you see it something click in their eyes mm-hmm. and all of a sudden you realize like they or they realize like whoa i am actually quite a powerful person i i have the ability to to work through these things um and then how grateful they are that like oh thank you know they thank you as a therapist but like it's awesome just to see hey they're they they are realizing that they can do something with their lives and then they do it and it's super cool yep. you know what related to that i want to bring up something about therapy process that i've noticed over the years um in my experience, there seem to be like three phases of therapy. There's the initial phase where people are coming in and they're animated and they're excited to get to work and everything I say is new and everything they do is new. And a lot of times we'll see some good changes in that in that first part, um, maybe just by nature of being there and, and working on it. And then we get to what I call the middle phase, which is the hardest phase to cope with in therapy because you repeat the same session 14 times in a row. <laughs> I ask the same questions. They have the same answers. We get stuck sometimes. I'm not sure how to conceptualize what's going on. They keep repeating the same patterns and we we try seven different things and none of it works. And that's when I think the highest dropout you know, happens in therapy when people go, this isn't working I need a different therapist. And certainly maybe, maybe that's true sometimes. Maybe a different therapist could have a better insight. But I often will actually tell my clients we're in the middle phase right now. So just understand that it's going to be slow. It's going to be like going uphill through molasses in the snow, whatever, whatever I need to, you know, whatever metaphor works to help people realize this part is slow and we will repeat the same session a bunch of times. And then one day, whether it's in here and often it's not, often it's out of the session, some epiphany will happen. Something will shift and change. And then we will instantly transition to the late phase of therapy where we're back moving again. Progress is happening. And that's usually quick. You know, usually once I hit late phase with people, they're only a handful of therapy sessions away from graduating and being done and going, I'm fine now. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's that pushing through that middle phase where everything just feels like it's not going anywhere. That's really, really important. 
I don't know if you've noticed any patterns like that. Yeah, I have. Um, it, it definitely, I, I mean, it depends on the clients, though. Um, a lot, a lot of, I have noticed a lot of times when I work with couples, it, it's a little more apparent um, where it's like, oh, they're really excited to come in and work on stuff. And a lot of times they feel really hopeless about their relationship and then things start working. But then those those patterns and those habits that they're in in their lives like really take a hold and that's when it's like i'm saying the same things to you over and over again yeah, yeah. and and eventually one of the things that i've learned helps me get through that is if i can kind of make it a make it a joke with them or like they'll say something like uh, or they'll start doing their thing again and i said and i'll just be like you're doing it again and yeah. then they'll start <laughs> laughing and it, they, they laugh and they get a little bit frustrated. And, right. But then it reminds them, it's like, okay, but we are doing this. I've warned you. I've kind of prepped you for like, hey, look, we are kind of in that that part where we're really working on changing some of the the, the most set habits that, that you have. Let's work on this. Um, bear with me a little bit. Let's talk for a minute about what types of skills therapists need to have. Because I think you know, the cliche out there is how does that make you feel, yeah. right? That's the cliche <laughs> question. And people think that therapists just are asking people how they feel over and over again. And that somehow that that changes things. And I remember going back to this idea of uh, reading people's minds. I remember when I, I was a, doing software development, web development before I became a therapist, because that's the skill set I had. And I was working at a university. And one of the guys in uh, the group with me, we were all in these cubicles, he found out I was going to become a therapist and he started calling me carny, like carny rat, like a, <laughs> a guy at a carnival that would guess your weight or whatever. Um, he was like, you guys are just, you're just professional guessers. You know, that, that's all you do is you just, you just make stuff up. You invent things and then people pay you money. And I was admittedly a little bit offended by that. <laughs> um, but there is certainly some element of being able to know what's happening with a person and understanding their internal experience, sometimes hopefully even better than they understand it, or being able to articulate it better than they uh, can. And sometimes just saying it out loud, what they're thinking and haven't been able to articulate can change things for people. So I think one skill that's really important is being able to not only listen, okay, but anybody can listen. Yep. You, don't, you don't get paid a bunch of money just to listen. Uh, you know, people aren't paying $2 a minute in therapy so that you can listen to them. They're paying for change. Yeah. And so uh, the idea here is I can listen, but I'm listening for something specific. I'm listening for the, the key thing that I need to pay attention to. Uh, I'm listening for the, the, the story that I need to be able to tell on behalf of the client. I'm listening for that thing that the client hadn't noticed. They hadn't picked up on the pattern, whatever it is that I can then come back and say, I'm seeing this. And then people go, I'd never thought of that before. Like I'll have people say, these symptoms of my child started six months ago, right? And I'll go, was there anything else happening six months ago? Well, yes, that's when his brother got cancer. And for some reason, because there was too much chaos, they hadn't noticed that connection until mm -hmm. that very moment. And then I go, I'm thinking that probably has something to do with it, right? So are there other skills that you've noticed that are really important that we need to be able to have to do a good job? Um, well, just going off what you're saying, it's I always come back to being able to not just listen, but notice patterns. Right. Be able, can you, can you as a therapist uh, make connections with what's 
with or set up the patterns for them um, so that they they can make sense of what's going on. Um, just kind of more clarifying what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, one one of the one of the big skills is being able to have a remain calm, like or have a sense of stability of your own kind of emotional mm-hmm. welfare that's going on in in therapy uh, gets pulled out a lot when uh, you're working with couples that are in high conflict, so they're screaming at each other. Right. Um, I. I always joke around with my clients that like I've I've had times where I've I've literally had stuff thrown at me before um, because I, so I also have <laughs> yeah <laughs> or or you want they either throw it at you or they throw it at each other yeah and being able to like sit calmly and say um, one don't take it personally you know this is it's not necessarily about me um, they're just kind of struggling with their own emotional thing and being able to kind of sit there and say or pick apart what's going on to be able to figure out what to say next or sometimes really um going along with that is the skill of being able to kind of sit in silence um while yeah. they think to themselves and while you think and that's like that for me that was the hardest thing at the beginning because i hate silence in my life <laughs> and then being able to just sit there and and be okay with um hey actually you know i don't quite know right off the bat let me think about this right. um i was lucky i had a i kind of had an excuse <laughs> which was i i had a, a brain injury a couple of years ago mm. and i used to draw on that to deal with my own stuff to be like oh my brain sometimes takes a little bit to think about stuff right. but at the end of the day i was developing that skill of just saying okay Hold on, it's not me. We can we can figure this out. We can calm down. And sometimes hitting a pause button and being willing to just s- slow everything down is a really crucial skill to have. Especially when your clients also aren't comfortable with silence. I mean, it, somebody in the room has to be comfortable with it to be able to say, it's okay if we sit here for a minute or two or three. In fact, one of my therapists, once, uh, one of our colleagues here, once sat with a client for, I think, 40 minutes in silence. Wow. <laughs> I don't think I've got that. That's like ninja level yeah. therapist, you know. Uh, that's outside my core skill set. But, you know, that that level of patience to be able to say, you're not ready to talk yet? That's all right. I'll yep. just sit with you. The other thing I think, and it's always high conflict couples where you find out what you're made of. Yes. Right? Because yep. I'm just going to say this. It's way easier to sit with an individual in most cases, than it is to sit with a couple. Because an individual isn't arguing with themselves. You know, they're they're not they're not upset with themselves. Sometimes people are, they're maybe feeling ashamed, but they're not gonna lash out at themselves in most cases. Sometimes you get a little bit of that, but uh, once you get a high conflict couple, and it's the people where it's like it, they both care so deeply about the issue and they don't want to back down. And that's not necessarily a sign of they're in trouble because there are plenty of high conflict couples that have very fulfilling relationships. It's just they have to learn how to do the high conflict. And obviously they're sitting across from you because they don't know how. And there's research on couples therapy that says that the the best therapists for couples are the most active therapists. Mm -hmm. So you can't just sit there and go, how does that make you feel? Now, how does that make you feel? And what are you thinking, you know, how are you feeling now that they said that? And how are you feeling that they said what you, you know, you can't just do that. You have to be able to intervene. And I will frequently intervene with the couples I'm working with 
and I'll put my hand up and I'll say, this needs to stop. Pause. Yep. Take a pause break. Because then I'll say, because right now, if this continues, you're going to be doing what you do for free at home for $2 a minute right now. And that seems like a terrible <laughs> waste of your time and money. And that's usually pretty sobering to people like, wow, yeah. <laughs> and they do stop. But I have to then be able to intervene and change the dynamic. I can't just say, this is so interesting that you do this and then you do this. I have to be able to physically change the dynamic. That's when that's when the magic really happens in couples therapy is I go, I want you to say this now to the other person. And they're like, well, you just said it. That's weird. And I go, say it anyway, because when it comes out of your mouth, it's going to sound different than when it came out of my mouth and it'll still be meaningful. And then, I, and then I'll stop and I'll say to the other person, don't answer yet. We need to come up with something to say. And so when I intervene and when I change the pattern in the moment, that's when couples walk away going, okay, this isn't just about how does this make you feel? This is actually about real legitimate change. And that gets people invested. And then they can trust you that you're not just going to get run over by their process. If you're getting run over by a couple's process, then you're not ready to work with couples. You still have work to do. Yep. Well, and that's, uh, that's one of those skills is being, can you tolerate emotionally tolerate pushing actually kind of raise or we call raising the intensity of uh to change the dynamic and there's a lot a lot of things i think about uh one of the the famous founders of marriage family therapy carl whitaker oh yeah super super famous for doing these like out of out of the box things and i actually once in a in a session i was with a with a couple high conflict couple and they just kept uh, one, it was kind of the called pursuer distancer where one spouse wanted to engage in conversation. The other one just kept shutting going, down. kept yeah. shutting down and going away. And so I ended up doing something where I, I grabbed the tissue box and I put it in front of the couple. And it, this is really hard for me because I, I wasn't sure what was going to happen. But I put it in front of the, the couple and I said to the one spouse, I said, why don't you talk to this tissue box? You'd get more out of that than you'd get out of your spouse. <laughs> and and it was kind of intense. I've n- I'd never done something like that before, but it actually ended up making them laugh really hard. Mm-hmm. And then they kind of came back together and they ended up turning their chairs to each other hmm. and actually talking. And I was like, huh. And, but learning to tolerate things like that, where it's like, you, this isn't, this isn't a job like a career or profession where you do just get to sit back and say, how are you feeling? Right. I have to, it, you do have to kind of some cause some change to happen right. at times. And that can be really emotionally intense and hard. Um, but if you can get over that and learn to do those kinds of things, it's very rewarding. When I go home, I have to be able to like on the drive home, I have to be able to transition back into the rest of life. I have to be able to say to myself, these people have had these problems longer than I have known them, and they will continue to have challenging things happening, and I won't always be in their life. They're not, as much as I tell clients, hey, you know, I'm here for another 27 years, (laughs) you know, most people don't want to be seeing me for 27 years. And so uh, I have to be able to just walk away from that and say, I am a touch point in their life. I am a single contact point. And I hope that it's a powerful and useful and change producing contact point, but I'm just one. And I can go home and I can do life and I can show back up. And for me, it's like, I want, I have to be able to get my mindset where I'm 
wh- whoever I'm with, that's the only thing that's going on, right? So if I'm with my wife or kids, that's what's happening in that moment. If I'm with a client, that's what I'm dealing with. And sometimes I'll have really difficult sessions where it's hard to, you know, disconnect from what happened because it's emotionally intense. And I'll have to tell my next client, hey, give me about a minute or two. I need to kind of breathe and, and prep to, mm-hmm. to work with you. And so either sometimes with them, because I've already brought them in the room and I didn't realize that I was like, whoa, I'm a little intense here. <laughs> or sometimes before they come in, I just breathe for a moment. I focus on whoever's in front of me and I go, nothing else matters right now. I'm focusing on the present moment, who I'm with now. And that makes a huge difference for me. Uh, whereas my mind generally does tend to want to race and, and think about every little thing and everything that's going on. If I can just stay present with who I'm with in the moment, that makes a big difference for me. Are, are there other things that you notice that, that help you to, to make it to the next day and, and keep wanting to do this, even <laughs> though it's really difficult work? Um, reminding myself that I'm human and it's okay to be a human, uh, more so than other professions. Like I've recognized that this is me. Like I'm, I am the, I am the tool, right? right. I am, I am the tool coming into the room. Um, I, this isn't like a, a, another job where I get to go to a cubicle and even if I'm really tired, it's still kind of okay. Um, want to if i just remind myself like it's okay for me to make sure that like i'm okay and actually most clients that i see are very understanding of that right if i have a sick day it's very they're they're like they'd much rather me be okay um and they'll always check in after i've taken that sick day the next week i see them they're always like are you okay is there anything we can do (laughs) um and just reminding myself like that that's when when i when i do that and i remind myself hey you're human I it really helps me to be able to focus from day to day. Um, I also make sure that I do something intentional when I go home, uh, something that is intentionally uplifting or a hobby of mine. Um, right. That just allows me to kind of calm down and reconnect with my normal life as opposed to other, like my clients' lives. Yeah. I think for people who are considering this as a profession, there, there's a few things they need to know. First off, you really need to be doing your own work first. So if you're not doing your own therapy, then you need to start. If you're not addressing your own issues, you need to start because guaranteed anything you have not yet addressed will come up yes. in therapy <laughs> with your clients and you'll get reactive and you won't know why. So, you you know, and all good therapists that I know have their own therapists, you know, that we all see. And maybe we're not in every week, 24, you know, not 24 seven, but you know, all year round. Sometimes we go in for periods and then we take breaks and whatnot, but we're all seeing somebody to be able to keep working out our own stuff that comes up, you know, when we're with clients. The other thing I think is really important is people have to understand how extremely intense graduate school and mental health is. It's not like going to school for some other thing where you're just in class and you're taking notes and then you go home and you write a paper. Like every day is an emotional drain and sometimes an emotional explosion because as soon as you start digging into the complexities of being human all of your stuff is popping up and so uh it's like two years of crazy emotional boot camp and i think not everybody's ready for that they don't realize like wow i'm gonna get shredded to bits here so you've got to be prepped you got to be doing your emotional work and you have to know that graduate school is gonna it's intentionally going to just tear you apart 
to be able to see if you can tolerate it. And if you can't, then it's not the right profession for you. And if you can, it might be the right profession for you. And again, I think like we said earlier, there's no way to know that this is what you want to do or can do or is the right thing for you until you dig in. So I think it's good for people to explore other options unless they just knew from the beginning or from the day they were born they were going to be a therapist. It's important to look at other options too and don't just say, well, I like talking to people and you know I like helping people so therapy must be the right career for me because talking to people and helping people is really, really, really different in a lot of ways than being a professional mental health you know, provider. So just awareness and looking into that, doing your own therapy and being prepared. And then knowing that, you know, maybe one out of 50 or one out of 20 or one out of 30 people go all the way through a master's program and then still don't do it. Yeah. They, they graduate and they go, this isn't right for me. And they pick a different career. And, you know, if you're willing to take that risk with that, you know, the student loans and the time and everything, then okay. But if you're not ready yet, then you don't, don't, don't dive into it just because you've, you know, you've, graduated from your own therapy and then you thought I'm ready to become a therapist because I enjoyed it on this it's different on both sides of the couch I guess is the best way to put it yeah definitely I uh I have so many people that come to me and ask me how did you know that you wanted to do this and I I was one of those people when I was 10 I probably should admit to this story on public radio but when (laughs) I here we go but when I was 10 I I uh I charged my parents 25 cents to come talk to me. Um, <laughs> I love this story so much. <laughs> I already, already kind of knew I wanted to be a therapist. Um, but like anything when you're a kid, you know, you want to be an astronaut. You want to be whatever. When you grow up and you realize like this is not just the happy-go-lucky road that you thought it would be. Right. And my, my grad program was the same thing. It was really, really difficult. And for and for all of my classmates, many of whom I still stay in contact with, we talk about our different experiences. It was hard for all of us in different ways. But now when people ask me, like, what I'm considering going into the social sciences because I want to help people, um, I, I end up being pretty frank. And I say, okay, well, here's kinds of the things to expect. Um, yeah. There are a lot of other, there are a lot of great ways to help people that aren't necessarily being a therapist. Right. But being a therapist is also very rewarding. Uh, it's challenging, but very rewarding. And you just do, ha- you do have to consider what some of the things you're talking about. Right. Um, is this really what you want to do? The one thing I would add to it is if you want to know this is what you want to do, try to get like an internship of some sort when you're doing your undergrad working in like a treatment center or something like that to observe, even though that's kind of a, sometimes a more intense thing um, that will give you a sense of how much you really want to be in this profession or yeah. a beginning sense. If you're, if you're like a line staff in an adolescent treatment center and dealing with kids flipping out yep. or, you know, I don't know, peeing on themselves for fun or whatever it is that they're doing <laughs> in this, has some hard jobs in that world uh, and you can tolerate that part, you might, you might be ready. Yep, exactly. <laughs> you, you might be ready to consider it. So, Hopefully this is helpful for uh, those who are just want a, an inside look in what it's like in our brains or also an inside look in the, the profession in general. For those who are considering mental health as a profession, uh, hopefully we gave some, some uh, ideas on what you might want to consider and look into before you uh, really take that, that next step or take the leap into that, uh, the world of graduate school. And uh, please feel free to share this with anybody you feel uh, is considering the world of mental health or uh, wants to know what your therapist is thinking when they're not with you. (laughs) 
Again, I want to just say thank you to everybody who continues to listen to the to the podcast and share it. We've got lots of new people joining, uh, lots of good reviews coming in, and just loving it. So thank you again to everybody. Please uh, rate, subscribe, offer a review online. We would love that. It helps the podcast get uh, into the ears of other people out there. And have a great day.